This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Joe Marianak about working with design legends like Milton Glaser, Paula Scher, and Michael Beirut, about the decisions that shaped his career, and about the process of getting hired at Apple. They kind of stalk you and find you and call you. I think there were 10 calls, 10 calls, four visits, seven meals. It was very, very intimidating. A couple background checks. Here's Debbie Millman. With the iMac, the iPod, the iPhone, and iPad, and other incredibly successful products, Apple has sold many millions of consumers on the power of good design. In fact, it's hard to make a better case for the importance of design than Apple's products do, with everything from the elegant packaging, the attentive retailing, and the intuitive software. So to be a designer and work for Apple must be a very heady experience indeed. Joe Marianek has led integrated projects with the Apple Global Design Group. We're going to talk a little bit about that, as well as his years working with the likes of Milton Glaser, Paula Scher, and Michael Beirut. This year, Joe co-founded the design studio Small Stuff in New York City, and he's also a colleague of mine here at the School of Visual Arts. Joe, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks for having me. So, Joe, I understand that in your spare time, you play the upright bass in a civic orchestra? I do. I just sort of came out with that recently. I've been... I mean, you came out with it. Is that something that you've been ashamed of all these years? I've been hiding it. I feel... (laughs) Well, I'm not not very good at it, but it's something I've, I've done since I was in elementary school, playing the bass in orchestra and jazz bands and things like that. And I recently, in San Francisco joined the Civic Strings group, which doesn't require any audition. It just requires a check of $50. So so pay to play, literally. Yeah, pay to play. <laughs> and we have a concert coming up. So you were born and raised in Ohio and lived in both Columbus and Cleveland. Now, I understand that your great uncle owned a printing company, and nearly all of your relatives have worked in graphic design. Was it simply expected that you would follow in their footsteps? It kind of was. Really? Um, yeah. So you I'm, never had any of that, you want to be a what, from yeah, your family? Not at all. How are you going to make money? I think at some point I said I wanted to be in theater, and they thought that was a terrible idea. But uh, Why? Oh, it just seemed like it wasn't an economical thing to do. And graphic, <laughs> graphic design, design was. Well, I think in Woo-hoo. the early, early <laughs> 90s, maybe it was. But I do think, I, I think there was that expectation, and people in my family do everything from industrial design to illustration to logo design and and things like that. It was sort of expected. So your first and only college choice was the Rhode Island School of Design. Really? Just one school? You only applied to one school? I had a couple safety schools, like anybody does, that sent me t-shirts and tried to wow me. What what were your safety schools? Cleveland Institute of Art, where a lot of my family went, and uh, I think Syracuse, Carnegie Mellon. So why RISD? Why was RISD your real sort of genuine ambition over a great, great school like Carnegie Mellon. You know, Ohio's a landlocked place. So after visiting there and and seeing the ocean for the second time ever, I was really intrigued to go to Rhode Island. And it seemed like a college town, too, which was great. You know, everybody wore black and was mysterious. So now you wear black and are mysterious? Where you were then? (laughs) I haven't been wearing black living in San Francisco, but I've unpacked some bags recently. Black clothes. So I understand that in your junior year, you got an internship with Milton Glaser 
And I understand he paid you in posters. So I have a couple of questions about that. First, how did you get the internship with Milton in your junior year? And second, what about the posters? I mean, were they signed? Which ones did you get? Mm -hmm. Tell us about all of that. This is like a very inspiring story that I always tell to my students because it shows that if you're really persistent, you can kind of get in anywhere. I love these stories. I was very organized with a resume that was very empty but well typeset. I think I used Ziggurat or some crazy font like that, or three or four fonts, and green paper. I did, green paper? Yeah, I did like a lot of forest like, green or emerald green? Kind or of a, kind of a mint. Green? Mint green. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, I, I knew a little bit about Pushman. Well, I knew a lot about Pushman because I really wanted to intern there. And I basically put together this little handwritten letter where I imitated some of this sort of Pushpin-style writing, which has roots in Vienna in the late 19th century or something like that. But of course I, it does. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, hand-addressed an envelope and, and wrote this appeal to come for a meeting and show them my portfolio. And I got a call back a couple days later from a guy named George Levitt, who actually, it turned out, was the person who did a lot of the lettering for Pushpin in the glory days and still. So he, I think it caught the right person's attention. I came in with a funny portfolio full of charcoal drawings and some strange printouts of work. And I think they were so embarrassed that uh, they had brought me there with, you know, and I had only, all I had was a few charcoal drawings of nudes and architecture and some... Yeah, but Milton likes that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think I think they sense, yeah, that's right. I mean, maybe they sense there's a little bit of, I was a little bit of a kindred spirit, but they also saw that I was pretty raw and I, I didn't have a slick portfolio. It's but sort you were of what already I'm in at. your junior year at RISD. You, didn't, you weren't doing slick stuff there or were you no. primarily doing fine art? No, I was doing graphic design there, but it's not a slick portfolio school. I mean, juniors at SVA or places like that, they could out-design a person who's been practicing for 30 years or at least their portfolio looks like they could. I think my portfolio was, was very raw, but they saw a lot of heart in it and that was like a good culture fit. So they brought me in and I interviewed and, and I got the internship which I did part-time in between doing an internship at Rolling Stone also. So you did two internships at the same time. That's right. And how much were you making at Milton for him to be paying you in posters? The deal is if you do an internship, a summer internship, you get three posters. And so that seemed good to me. And they're signed, I assume. And they're signed. Okay. Um, But I found out near the end of my internship that there were some posters that you weren't allowed to have, like the good ones. But I, I sort of... I pretended like that list didn't exist, and I, I took out my favorites, which were um, Simon Garfunkel, one of his cropped nudes, which I think was for an exhibition, and the New York Loves New York, which is the four Chrysler buildings with different weather conditions. And now I know, understand that you also have an obsession, and that's a word that I read, not a word that I'm surmising or making up, but that you have an obsession with Seymour Quast. I, I mean, it's not a creepy obsession. Um, Darn. I just, I feel like a lot of my career I've been imitating people who I think were great. And it really started with imitating Milton and Seymour and what those guys were doing. And I just think they're, you know, they're still prolific. It's amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing. So you graduated from RISD with honors in 2003, 11 years ago, and then went to work directly for Paula Scher. Mm-hmm. So here you are, what, your early 30s at this point, if that? Mm-hmm. And you've worked for Milton Glaser, you've worked for Rolling Stone, and then you get an internship or and a job with Paula Scher. You said that the experience working with Paula was going to, like going to grad school. Mm-hmm. You learned that much? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Paula's just, she's so generous with her 
team and her designer. She, she's teaching when she's designing. She was doing an interview. Actually, she was doing an ad for Apple. And one of the things that she said was, my designers get to borrow my eyes and they get to see through me and they get to design through me. And I think that kind of underscores the whole experience there. You're given all of this trust and you're given these projects and you're allowed to borrow, you know, this master's voice and kind of learn how to use it. So you and Paula developed the Shake Shack identity, one of the great Mm -hmm. iconic identities living in New York City at this moment. And you created the nearly instantly iconic illustrations. And I want to read a quote from Print Magazine about the impact of that work. And so here it is. The fare at New York City takeout Mecca Shake Shack is undeniably tasty, but perhaps it's the shack's design that has established it so firmly in New Yorkers' hearts. The shakes come in toffee-colored cups with clean-lined blue illustrations of ice cream cones and burgers. The same drawings grace the menus. At the top of the building's slanted roof, the shack's name stands in elegant steel neutraface letters more than two feet high. It's modern, yet reminiscent of luncheonettes and automats gone by. This classic marriage of middle American hominess and New York chic was created in part by Joe Marianic, whose own kindly, forthright demeanor speaks to his Midwestern upbringing as well as his city home. So I want to ask you, like, really? (laughs) Do you think that your Midwestern upbringing helped create such successful graphics? No. Um, not <laughs> Easy at all. answer. No, I think. Um, <laughs> no offense to Print Magazine, we love you. No, print. I forget who wrote that, but I. Um, it was. I do know who wrote it. It, it was. One, that's a. There's something to being from the Midwest and kind of coming to the big city and not really knowing anything and not knowing anyone and and just trying everything. I think a lot of people do that and do great work, but I don't think that the Shake Shack particularly has a Midwestern flavor. However, Danny Myers from the Midwest and. I think it was inspired a lot by these little roadside stands like Dairy Queens and Tasty Freezes everywhere. John Mellencamp writes terrible songs about that. Oh, they're not so bad. They're, they're not bad. They're great. So you've actually described the work you did for Shake Shack as very architectural and undelicious. Well, how was it undelicious? Paul and I did the first identity for the Shake Shack, I think, in about two months. They needed cups and bags, and they needed to open this thing and drop some metal letters on top of the building. It was a rush job. It was a free job. Why was it free? I don't think they had time to write a check. I think it was, it, was, <laughs> it was just a kind of a whirlwind, and it was Danny Meyer's just, you know, experiment in the park. It wasn't the global franchise it is today. So we, we did the first iteration of the identity together, which was these illustrations that were meant to match the prefab architecture and the Neutra face letters, and they're a bit cold. And I think then when Shake Shack started to expand to City Field and all of these other locations, there was time to do a proper branding exercise on it and to think of how it could scale across the world to places like Russia. So did they pay you in food? Did you get to eat as many Shake Shack burgers and have as many Shake Shack shakes as you wanted? I used to sneak into the front of the line sometimes, but I stopped doing that. How did you sneak in front of the line? Well, this was when there wasn't a line, actually. You know, people would walk by this thing and think it was like a bank or something or whatever. And and so you could just kind of walk to the front and say, hey, can I get a... Oh, so inside, you're, you're using that inside info. Yeah, we didn't print like gift cards or anything. So you left Paula to go work at Landor. First, what was her reaction when you told her you were leaving to go to Landor? She drew a chart, which I think she's drawn before. It's been printed before about a designer's career, which has all these little steps and plateaus. And she told me where I was on this chart. And I was at a plateau where I could either, you know, I was still on the upswing. I hope I still am. And she said I was at a point where I had to make a decision if I wanted to 
wait and continue to get better or to make a change and kind of learn a lot. And so she encouraged me to make the change for the sake of learning. But I think she was pretty, she was pretty ticked off. <laughs> <laughs> so, but why Landor? What made you decide to go to Landor? I mean, was it something you actively sought out or was it one of those situations that sometimes fall into your lap? A little bit of both. I think doing projects like the Shake Shack and a few other branding projects made me really hungry to do larger scale things. And I saw that as an opportunity at Landor, especially at that time, some of the work they had been doing recently with FedEx and all of that. So that was kind of why. Did you work in the New York office? I did. So did you experience culture shock going from one of the biggest design consultancies in the world to one of the biggest brand consultancies in the world? Totally. So talk about that. What was that like? Yeah. Even the architecture of the space felt so different than Pentagram. I think it looks like the set of the real world circa 1996, the way the cubicles were set up and the way that people moved around. And there were all these sort of people who had mysterious jobs like planning. And it was a little scary at first, but... um, Scarier than going to Pentagram right out of school? Yeah, because the Pentagram's all designers and they all speak the same language. I mean, some of them speak it better than others. But I think at Landor, you have a lot of different talents that come together for something. I read that Landor wanted you to change Paula's iconic city logo while you worked there, but you didn't want to do it. Yeah. Were you successful at saying yeah. no? And what was their reaction to it? Why, and did, why did you tell them no? Did you feel like it was that good? It shouldn't be changed? There are a couple of reasons. And you know, everyone wants to do a bank or an airline or some big project like that, right? An airplane tail. An airplane tail, right. And this was an opportunity when City, you know, approached Landor to rethink the entire brand of the retail operation, investment banking, everything. And I think Landor was really hungry to change it for the sake of changing it. And not only did I think that was a mistake in concept, but it was also an expensive thing to do. It would cost a billion dollars to rip down all these signs that had just been put up four years ago and put up some kind of slightly different logo. It's not changing the name. There is no good reason to do that unless you want to express change for the sake of expressing change, which doesn't seem to do much for a consumer, doesn't seem to do much for anyone. So I, you know, I caught wind that they were working on this project. I raised my hand to work on it. And I ended up kind of leading the design team for the project and really holding this idea of not changing the logo, making sure that we definitely put our foot forward in terms of how to extend the current identity. And that's what ended up happening. There were thousands and thousands of, of city logos that Landor designed. There were you know, some good ones, but it just wasn't the right thing to do. Now, was there a fundamental different approach in the way design was managed at the two companies that you can talk about? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, when there are more people in the room, the design process can really slow down and, and it can wear a client out. I think what happened at Landor sometimes was that you would have a room full of people staring at a bunch of pieces of paper on the wall talking about them. And kind of repeating that over and over every day until the designers wore out, they wore out, the client wore out, and they just were forced to choose something or whatever it was. I felt like that process happened quite a bit. You know, it wasn't an iterative process that was crafting a new mark or crafting a new strategy always. Sometimes it was just that. And I felt with the city mark in in particular that the real strategy was to build on what had already been created. What was your best work at Landor? Probably that. Probably that. City? Yeah, keeping, you know, just putting my foot down and keeping the city logo and going into meetings in Long Island City and saying, this is your logo, keep it. With, had had with, you worked on a logo at all with Paula? No, not at all. I'd worked on some, like, credit card designs or something for her. 
I was just in the basement trimming the corners of credit cards <laughs> for a summer. <laughs> so no nepotism there. No, no. <laughs> so you rejoined Pentagram's New York office in 2007. So a little bit of ping pong, right? You went at Pentagram and then Landor and back to Pentagram. Is that right? Yeah, I heard Michael was looking for somebody, and I sent him an email begging to come work for him. And he sent me an email back that said, meet me at the clock at Grand Central or something like that. And, and so I, I met him for breakfast, and it was less like an interview but more like a meeting, which was great. I was kind of starstruck because I, you know, I always wanted to work for Michael. Um, who doesn't? Yeah, I don't know who doesn't. There's got to be somebody. Yeah, maybe Paula. <laughs> maybe Paula. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to talk about the big white elephant in this room. You sound exactly like Michael. You and Michael could be inhabiting the same soul. The first time I ever heard you talk, I thought I was seeing things, that Michael Beirut's voice was coming out of somebody else's body. So I know I'm not the first person to have said this, and I know I've only met you since working for Michael. I never knew you before working for Michael. So when did this sort of thing happen? Yeah, I don't think having, I don't think it's a disease that I caught working for him. I th- you just think always have the exact same voice? Part of it is probably just growing up in Ohio or and having kind of a nasally accent and being a designer and saying the same words. I mean, he says many more eloquent words than I do. And I think that working with him perhaps reinforced that. But that was one of the great things about Working with him is like just being able to see how he thinks and kind of get into his head. And, and, and Oh, yeah. If I could talk like Michael Beirut, I would talk like Michael Beirut. No question <laughs> about it. If there was a way to learn it, I would do it. Yeah, I don't think it's like about talking like him, but I think we both came from a similar place coming from Ohio. And maybe there was really? something Really? You think that. it's an Ohio thing? I've spent a lot was, of time in Ohio. Yeah. I have not met anybody else that sounds like Michael Beirut. You are the only one. Really? Really. I don't know then. Okay, but let's talk about Ohio for a second, because you have an obsession with Ohio. What is it with you and your obsessions? Seymour, Ohio. I saw a project you did wherein you created what seemed like 100 typographic treatments for the word Ohio. Yeah. My senior degree project at RISD was about rebranding Ohio for their bicentennial. And I created this, you know, fake bicentennial exhibition and and celebration where I rebranded Ohio. I mean, it's a great, you know, high in the middle and round on each end. It's a beautiful word, fun to typeset. <laughs> Say that again, high in the high middle. High in the wh- middle, round on each end. Oh, that's beautiful. Kind of like a credit card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So with Michael, you worked on the identity of the Tenement Museum, which you said was based on bricks. The identity you created was based on bricks. Mm-hmm. Is it true that you took three tours there in one day? Yeah, it was really – I mean, that was like – if you get, if anyone listening to this hasn't been to the Tenement Museum, go. It's an artifact. It's an old building that is preserved just by chance. Just to immerse ourselves in, in the museum because I, th- I don't think either of us had been there. We just spent uh, actually one or two days going through all of the different types of tours, different types of immigrant stories, an Irish immigrant from the early part of the 20th century, a German immigrant from the mid uh, part of the 19th century. I think learning about all these immigrant stories kind of helped us realize how varied the institution was and walking around and kind of seeing that they had a wayfinding problem in addition to um, a brand crisis. Uh, It's great. One of my favorite projects of yours while you were at Pentagram was the identity work for Guitar Hero. (laughs) And I know that you worked with Armin Witt at Pentagram 
when that work was being done or when it was, I think, first initiated. First of all, I wish that I could have been a fly on the wall listening to you and Armin and Michael talk about design. Armin Witt, the founder of Brand New, the founder of the first ever design blog on the Internet, Speak Up, did all of that work prior to coming to Pentagram and continued all through Pentagram um, and now has a business just based on those blogs. But what was it like for the three of you to be working together? Oh, it was great. I mean, it, I felt like when I was going to work for Michael, the bonus was that I could sit next to uh, Armin and, and then I made a good friend in Jennifer Kynon. It was a great time to work there. I'd always loved Armin's blogs and kind of written for them a little bit. And uh, we used to stay late nights and kind of chit-chat about stuff. It was it was fun. Well, Armin really liked the Guitar Hero logo when it came out. He was no longer obviously working at Pentagram when he wrote about it, but I want to read what he said. I'm giddy about the logo. Pentagram partner Michael Beirut, designers Joe Marianic and Kai Salmela, is yep. that, yeah, Salmela, along with a cadre of image makers, have revamped Guitar Hero to Rockin' Heights. Disclosure. Yes, I work for Michael. And yes, Joe Kai and I shared working bays. And yes, there are conflicts of interest at stakes. So the upcoming praise may be questionable. Whatever. When colleagues and ex-bosses do good work, there's no shame in recognizing it. I love that. It's very. It's a very Armin quote. But what I want to ask you is, when you're working on an identity, specifically redesigning an existing identity, how do you know when the right design comes along? How do you know when the right iteration hits? It's always when people walk by your screen and say, that's awesome, or that's great. What is that? Or say, that's horrible even. I mean, I think when it evokes a strong emotion is when we know it's right. Even when they say it's horrible. Yeah, yeah, because they don't understand it probably. I mean, it might be just be horrible, but at least then you can do something with it, throw it away. But I think those serendipitous circumstances happen quite a bit at Pentagram. What do you do when your client tells you that it's horrible? Aside from it depends, <laughs> it depends on your relationship with the client, I guess. Well, give us some scenarios. Hmm. I don't think I've ever been in a – I've never had a client say it's horrible. I think – They've we, never gone blech. Yeah, I can think of a situation. I won't name the client, but where, where we were down the road with a design and we all felt really great about it. It's usually like a person who wasn't involved in the process that – wanted to be involved in the process or thought they should have been that enters in too late. They're invited to a meeting and they're probably checking their phone during the meeting. And it's probably not an iPhone. It's probably a dumb BlackBerry. Um, <laughs> they're like not paying attention. And then they, you know, someone turns to them who wants a, a raise or a bonus and says, hey, boss, what do you think? What do you think of this thing? And they say something like, uh, I think we should keep going or I don't know. I don't get it. I don't like it. And and you can't do anything then. You can't re-educate them. You can't go backwards in time. That's happened a few times. And I think what's really frustrating in that situation is that you can't actually say, F you, pay me, or what are all these things that designers want to say. You can't do that. You have to move forward. You have to. It creates a political atmosphere where you have to work through it. it interesting. It reminds me of a quote. I, I think it might have been when I interviewed Paula, although it might have been in another lecture or presentation that I saw of hers, wherein she said that people don't pay identity designers the big bucks to design the identities. They pay identity designers the big bucks to navigate through the politics. And the process. And yeah. the process. Although I do have to say that a couple of years ago, I was in a meeting with the CEO of a company, and he was checking his BlackBerry 
quite frequently and was a very big personality. Towards the end of the meeting, he said that very thing that you just said. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I get it. I don't get it. And I kind of lost my, my, my temper a What'd little bit. And I said, well, with all due respect, sir, you've been on your BlackBerry for most of the meeting. I think he fell in love with me after I said that, frankly. <laughs> right, right. And I, and I do think it's a lesson to be learned. I mean, you don't have to be nasty. I didn't really lose my temper. I kind of just lost my mind a little bit with intolerance right. <laughs> for the disrespect that is shown designers when they aren't really being listened to after they put so much time and effort into something so meaningful. You think your work is valued and you walk into a room and then you realize all of a sudden, oh, my gosh. Nobody cares about what I'm showing them. Yeah. If you're not allowed to put on your iPhone or your BlackBerry while you're watching a movie, you shouldn't be allowed to do it when you're looking at design work, right? (laughs) That's right. So in 2012, it's kind of extraordinary, the trajectory of your career. You moved west to lead integrated projects with the Apple Global Design Group. How the hell did that happen? It was really strange. I got a call, I think it was maybe two months after Steve Jobs died, that Apple was recruiting, all of a sudden that signaled something interesting to me that, you know, Apple's going to change. Apple's going to grow. Apple's interested in doing new things. Or they're panicking and they're just hiring a lot of people. But it it turns out that the former was true. They were really interested in bringing in new talent from New York. And they were interested in people who didn't have in-house experience necessarily or people who come from a brand place. They wanted new blood, I think. And I think that They saw a lot of value in somebody who had a lot of experience with branding and things like that. The craft of doing all these things we do as designers is very much valued in that culture. And so what was the process like? Did you get called by a headhunter? Did you see a job that you applied for online? How do you get a job at Apple? They kind of stalk you and find you and call you. I think there were 10 calls. 10 calls. Four visits, seven meals. Oh my God! It was very, they watch you chew. very intimidating. A couple background checks. They really check you out and make sure that you're a great culture fit and that you um, that you're interested in doing it. What did they find out when they did the background check? They didn't find out anything. <laughs> I mean, I had one credit card that I was carrying a balance on, but that's it. And so then they make you this offer. At this point, you had already become associate partner at Pentagram, which is no small feat. That's a big, big deal. And so you had to make this decision, do I stay at Pentagram or do I go to Apple? Oh, poor you. Tough decision. That was like the hardest decision I've ever made in my professional career because I can imagine. everybody, no matter where they are in their life or career or whatever, there's always something great and you can either keep doing it or you can just like break yourself of it and try something new and, and take a lot of risk. You know, it was a time in my life where... I had been working for my mentors, and I thought it was a great moment to fly the nest and try something where I could actually apply what I'd learned. Now, I know that Apple is notoriously secretive about the work done there, and I'm sure you had to sign a confidentiality agreement and all of that. But is there anything you can tell us about what you worked on or what it was like to work there or the type of projects that you did? Any any tidbits you could throw us? Uh The amazing thing about going to Apple is that you realize that you're entering a place where everyone is an expert in their respective field. So whether it's an industrial designer, a person who knows a lot about cryptography or linguistics or uh, materials, I mean, anything from paper to metallurgy or something like that, I quickly learned that you were in a position to collaborate with all of these people. So it was like being in its own little city with all of these experts. And it's kind of like a university in that way. You know, there are all these different majors and the people who stay there are people who 
have reached a point in their field where they're very comfortable doing what they love at Apple. The people who leave are really interested in doing more of what they love in a different way. And that was part of the reason that I left. I think I was interested in trying new things still and still growing. I think that was what I discovered by being there. But it tends to be like an older culture than a lot of startups or a lot of places in Silicon Valley, whether it's Google and Facebook. And older, I mean people in their 30s, not their early 20s or late teens or whatever. Yeah, um, older, older, in their 30s. <laughs> their 30s yeah. are so old. Um, <laughs> I, I remember when I was in my 20s, I thought people in their 30s, their life was over. It's a horrible <laughs> Kid, try your 50s, kid. God. <laughs> no, but I, I, I think it's, it's a mature culture for people who are, are very comfortable in their careers and want to be, you know, take this very serious and focused knowledge that they have and apply it to something big. So now I do have to ask you the sort of standard question. What was the biggest thing, the most important thing, the most sort of life-changing thing you learned while working at Apple? I learned that I had a very limited scope of knowledge about design. You know, working with the human interface group with Johnny's team on the new iOS and working with paper engineers, working with interactive developers on projects that would actually come to fruition was very different than the agency environment here where you, you know, quickly put out these websites or put out this little product or print this thing. We worked very long hours, many, many months on things that would seem small in scope, but we did very detailed iterations and investigations into how to produce these things. I I don't know if you could experience that anywhere else. There's a deep curiosity about user-centered design there, whether that's a website, whether that's a quick start guide that goes in the box with the thing you get, or whether it's the way a button feels or material feels. Now, how is branding sort of viewed at, at Apple? Was it a word that was scoffed at, despite the fact that they're so good at it? Or was it a word that was embraced? I was just talking to somebody about this recently. We never, ever used the word branding. Interesting. And we never, ever used the word consumer. It was user, which I guess sounds bad. It sounds like a drug user or something. But I feel like if you say user, you put a bit of respect into the person who's using this thing that you made. But branding is not a separate conversation. It's just holistic, and it's part of the product. It's part of the experience. So you just left Apple to come back to New York. Was it scary to give your notice? It was very scary. It's scary to start your own company. It's scary to make a move across the country. Again? Again. What um, made you decide to do this? Uh, my partner and my wife, she was doing her MFA shortly before we went to California, and we talked about starting a studio then. One of the reasons that I went to Apple, this sounds um, a bit greedy, but I was really interested in, before I started my own studio, I wanted to learn best practices from Apple if I had the opportunity. So I figured this would be a great way to learn a little bit more before we go out on our own. My wife and I have collaborated for many years on little projects. Half of our home is a studio as such. We only thought we'd be in California for a year. It was a little experiment. And we decided, you know, now's the time. It's, you know, the snow is melting and we should get back to New York. Why the name Small Stuff? You know, there's that thing where you don't want to have to write a tagline. And I think that when you say small stuff, people kind of make up all these little things like, you know, big things come in small packages and think big. There's the famous Volkswagen ads. Um, (laughs) And also, I think both of us are interested in 
details. We're both interested in big picture things, obviously, but big picture is nothing without the details. And so have you already started winning projects? Have you already started the business or are you still in the planning stages? We started a while back, but we, I mean, we didn't sort of launch our business or our name publicly. I think one of the great things that I learned at Apple was iterative design. You know, they have the luxury of doing that when you have a lot of designers and you can put a lot of energy into projects. But the way we're trying to go about our business is to break our old methods of making things instead of having a big reveal with a, a name and an opening party in an office to slowly start doing projects for clients and trying to do new things that we haven't done before. That's kind of the goal. You know, in the same way that small stuff is irreverent and perhaps shoegazing, we want to try to do work that is irreverent in context of our old work. Is there a different way of looking at design, whether it be at an agency, at a consultancy, or in-house? I think one of the things where I realize working in-house is that the agency model is missing a certain type of approach to doing design. You know, I think one of the things I learned at Apple is that you everybody has a core competency or something they're great at. You know, if you're a small design firm, you sort of have to be great at everything. You have to be great at paying your bills. You have to be great at getting clients and all that stuff. I've, I, I have a new awareness or new humility. I think I know what I'm good at. I know I definitely know what I'm bad at, and I'm not afraid to be bad at those things. But what, I'm, what are you good at? What are you bad at? I'm... <laughs> uh, I'm not interested in just making pretty things. I'm interested in using design to build a language around an idea, whether that's using typography, that whether that's using things like physical objects or using media. I'm interested in creating things that build on an idea. I mean, I think what I'm interested in is what branding can be versus the traditional description of it. What I'm not interested in, and it's something that I did quite a bit in my past jobs, making convoluted long presentations to clients. I like the process of just sitting down with someone and showing them something and getting their reaction and, and working through an idea with them. And I think having had that experience at Apple, I would like to try to see how that would apply to a studio model. So, Joe, you've worked with Paula Scher, you've worked with Milton Glaser, Michael Beirut, Alan Dye. Now you're going to be working with your wife, uh, Dinah Freed. So what do you imagine that to be like? One of my ex-colleagues at Apple is a writer, and he wrote a manifesto for me about how to work with your wife. Oh, share, um, share. Is this going to be on your website? I'll, I'll put it up there. Um, <laughs> that would be great. I, I think the, the big takeaway for me is to um, maintain separate roles and maintain separate space. You know, you're an expert at one thing. Your wife is an expert at another. So back to your question about what do you want to do, what don't you want to do, or what are you bad at? My wife is very good at things that I'm bad at. She's good at writing. She's good at spelling. And she's also great at, like, taking a step back and saying no or this is wrong. Sometimes my enthusiasm can kind of put me in a place where I'm I'm down a bad roll. Uh, my, my enthusiasm can lead me astray. So <laughs> she's really good at, at seeing big picture and looking at details. And I think she also is – we have a great dynamic in front of other clients and other people. I think we found that we complement each other. So I'm looking forward to doing more of that. But the manifesto that my colleague wrote was basically telling me to keep separate spaces, tell her you love her. All the time. Um, don't talk to her during the day because then when you talk to her at night, you can, you can actually have something to say. You can talk about your day. 
And he also said just to let it go, chill out, relax. It'll be fine. Well, Jay, you've had the most extraordinary trajectory in a career in just about anybody working today. And I wish you all the best as you start this really thrilling new venture. Thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. Thanks so much. To find out more about Joe Marianic, go to his website, joemarianic.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.